This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 303. Happy New Year, everybody. Yes, it is Sunday, January 1st, 2023. And today in this episode, I am covering the news and rumor stories that caught my eye for this past week. So first off, let's head on over to Petapixel, and our first story is Photographer Builds DIY Scanner Camera that shoots 514 megapixel photos. A photographer built a DIY medium format camera from an Epson flatbed scanner and, a, and shot a 514 megapixel picture with it. Ryan Code. Kojima tells Petapixel that his project is not new and first built the Frankenstein camera 10 years ago. However, he has extracted more and more performance from it, recently capturing a 514 megapixel image. Kojima, the first person to ever convert an Epson CCD scanner into a digital camera, says, quote, the camera works as a normal scanner, basically. The original scanner uses an X5 lens to shrink down an A4 image to project an image to the CCD sensor. The linear CCD sensor length is about 45 millimeters. I removed the lens and put it on a linear slider and added gears to reduce speed to one-fifth. The camera's lens mount is a Mamiya 645. Their lens quality is not bad, and also the lenses are cheap for medium format lenses. In the above YouTube video from early 2022, Kojima explains he first made his DIY camera back in 2011. Quote, it uses a linear CCD instead of an area CCD, he says. A linear CCD moves while it's recording a photo, meaning that the subject must remain still. The advantage of using a linear CCD is that it can capture a much larger image area without having a massive CCD. My, my scanner camera can capture about the same size as a 645 medium format film camera. That's still considered a high-end camera today. Because of improvements to his PC, Kojima attempt, attempted to shoot a photo at an enormous 4,800 dots per inch, or DPI. The resulting file was 2 gigapixels, making it difficult to edit in Photoshop. So he scaled it down to 1,200 DPI, and the file came out at 514 megabytes. The resulting photo can be viewed in all of its glory at, any, at this link in this article in the show notes. Linear CCD versus area CCD. Kojima says that area CCD sensors don't actually capture true color pixels. Quote, each pixel can capture only one channel, which is red, green, or blue. The digital signal processor calculates other channels' values by using neighborhood pixels. This is called interoperation. On the other hand, linear CCDs will capture the pixel three times for each channel. As a result, linear CCD can capture true color, unlike area CCD. However, Kojima says the disadvantage of the linear CCD is that it's ultra-slow and it can only capture still objects. 
Kojima says that making the, the scanner was a lot of trial and error. Quote, it's not designed to capture images for natural light, he says. I needed to make some gimmicks to trick the sensor to avoid initialization errors. These gimmicks include adding another gear to reduce the CCD's speed and installing a light box to trick the scanner's firmware. Kojima adds that he hopes Epson might release the old firmware source code because he is a software engineer. He could add exposure controls to his DIY camera. More of Kojima's photos can be viewed on his Flickr page. And I think this is truly amazing. It's why I wanted to cover this story. This is the kind of creativity that you can find in the photographic community, that this gentleman was able to convert a flatbed scanner into a camera is just incredible. And my hat's off to him for being so creative. The cameras that captured some of the most famous photos of all times. William Anders' Earthrise and Joe Rosenthal's Raising the Flag on Iwo Jima are some of the most recognizable photos of all time. But few people know what cameras were used to take these iconic images. Here's a list of some of the most famous photos of all time and the classic cameras that were used to capture them. The shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald by Robert Jackson, 1963, captured with an Nikon S3. On November 22, 1963, Robert Jackson was assigned by the Dallas, Dallas Times Herald to cover President John F. Kennedy's visit to the city, which ended in his assassination by Lee Harvey Oswald. Two days later, Jackson was told to go to the police station to photograph the transfer of Oswald to the county jail. Using his Nikon S3 35mm camera, Jackson photographed the shooting of Oswald by Jack Ruby in the Dallas police station garage. Jackson's photo, taken immediately as the shot rang out, shows Oswald impacted by the bullet while Dallas police detective Jim LaBelle, who is escorting Oswald, re reacts in horror. In 1964, Jackson was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for photography for his image of the murder of Oswald. Earthrise by William Anders, 1968 modified Hasselblad 500EL. Earthrise is a photograph of Earth and some of the moon's surface that was taken from lunar orbit by astronaut William Anders on December 24, 1968, during the Apollo 8 mission. It has been described as the most influential environmental photo ever taken. The photograph was captured with a highly modified Hasselblad 500EL with an electronic drive. The camera had a simple sighting ring rather than the standard reflex viewfinder and was loaded with 70mm film magazine containing custom ectochrome film developed by Kodak. Immediately prior, Anders had been photographing the lunar surface with a 250mm lens and the lens was subsequently used for the Earthrise image. Afghan Girl by Steve McCurry, 1984, taken with a Nikon FM2. Photographer Steve McCurry shot one of the most famous portraits of all time while at an Afghan refugee camp in Pakistan in 1984 during the Soviet-Afghan War, known as Afghan Girl. The portrait features a 12-year-old girl named Sharbat Gula. Her striking green eyes captured the world's attention after it was published on the June 1985 cover of National Geographic. Raising the Flag on Iwo Jima by Joe Rosenthal, 1945, Speed Graphic. 
Joe Rosenthal's raising the flag on Iwo Jima was shot in 1945 towards the final stages of the Pacific War and shows six United States Marines raising the U.S. flag. Rosenthal's image became so iconic it was cast as a 100-ton bronze memorial and twice made into a U.S. postal stamp in 1945 and 95. Rosenthal photographed the flag raising on a speed graphic camera and then sent his film to be developed and printed. Upon seeing the picture, Associated Press photograph editor John Bodkin exclaimed, here's one for all time, and instantly transferred the image to the AP headquarters in New York City. The photograph was quickly picked up by wire by hundreds of newspapers, and it was distributed by AP within 17 and one half hours after Rosenthal shot it, an astonishingly fast turnaround time in those days. The Trinity nuclear test by Berlin Brixner, 1945, and it says 50 different cameras. A Trinity nuclear test, part of the Manhattan Project, was the most important scientific experiment in modern physics. The 1945 detonation was so fast and so bright that photographer Baron Brixner set up an array of cameras to capture the moment for Los Alamos Laboratory. Brixner was positioned 30,000 feet away from the explosion and had 50 cameras of varying speeds running from different locations to capture the shot in full motion. Wow, that's incredible. Guerrero Hiroshio by Alberto Corda, 1960, ordered the Leica M2. Uh, Horosio is, is a definitive photograph of Marxist revolutionary Che Guevara taken by Alberto Corda and helped solidify the leader as a cultural icon. The image was captured on March 5th, 1960 in Havana, Cuba at a memorial service for victims of the Las Cubre explosion. This classic portrait of Guevara is actually a cropped version of the wider image, which depicts a palm tree and the profile of Argentine journalist Jorge Massetti. To take the photograph, Corda used a Leica M2 with a 90-millimeter lens loaded with Kodak Plus X-Pan film. And speaking about the method, Corda remarked that, quote, this photograph is not the product of knowledge or technique. It was really coincidence or pure luck. The Hindenburg disaster by Sam Shear, 1937, Graflex Speed Graphic. Sam Shear was one of the hundreds of reporters that were present during the explosion of the Hindenburg dirigible balloon as it returned from a transatlantic crossing. Shear was equipped with a Graflex speed graphic camera and took a picture of the Hindenburg's arrival. When it suddenly caught fire, a horrified Sam reached for his camera and took a picture of the Hindenburg burning with the last remaining film that his camera had. Shear had no idea how the photo would turn out as he was in such a hurry to take the photo that he shot it from waist to level. He said, quote, I had two shots in my big speed graphic, but I didn't even have time to get it up to my eye. The photographer was later amazed to see how clear the image turned out. D-Day by Robert Kappa, 1944, Contacts 2. Robert Kappa came onto the shore with U.S. soldiers in, on June 6, 1944, otherwise known as D-Day, in an early wave of the attacks on Omaha Beach. 
He used his contacts, two cameras mounted with 50 millimeter lenses and several rolls of spare film to shoot the photo and returned to the United Kingdom within hours to meet a publication deadline for Life magazine's next issue. Migrant Mother by Dorothea Legg, 1936, Graflex Super D. Migrant Mother is an iconic image of the Great Depression taken by American photographer Dorothea Lang in Nipomo, California in 1936. Lang took the photograph with a Graflex Super D camera. Uh, update, this article was updated to clarify that Joe Rosenthal's raising the flag on Iwo Jima photo was shot in 1945 and not 49, as previously stated. We apologize for this error. <laughs> I did want to just throw that in there since the update was at the bottom of the article. And all of these are truly amazing images. I've seen all of them over the years. And it is cool to find out exactly what film cameras were used to capture some of these most famous images in world history. Photographer becomes internet hit for expired film and unusual cameras. A photographer has become an online sensation taking pictures of expired film and unusual vintage cameras. Miles Meyerkoff Harris has amassed over 1.5 million followers to his TikTok page, Expired Film Club, and has carved a full-time career testing out the uh, testing out of the ordinary cameras and old film that he can find. Miles has experimented with uh, number four cartridge Kodak from 1897 to a Casio wristwatch camera from the early 2000s. Miles tells Petapixel about how he started Expired Film Club and some of the most memorable cameras that he has tried. Miles started buying old film after he became fascinated by the unique photos that he produced using expired film. When he found himself with more time during the COVID-19 pandemic, Miles decided to record his experiment shooting with old film rolls and vintage cameras on social media. Expired Film Club all started during lockdown, really, Myerskoff Harris tells Petapixel. Quote, I had a bit of time on my hands, so I took the chance to really dive back into film photography as a way of escaping from the world a little bit. Through this, I started shooting more and more expired film, and I just loved the whole process of finding old rolls of film and getting in interesting results from them. So I started documenting it on my social media. He adds, quote, at the same time, I also started a little Etsy store as a bit of a passion project to pursue in my spare time, where I would sell lucky dip boxes of some of the expired film I had found and other film accessories. Amazingly, it's all grown to the point of being my full-time job now. Miles, who is based in Oxfordshire, UK, trawls eBay, antique shops, and thrift stores for expired film rolls and rare vintage cameras. The photographer also says he has become, quote, the person everyone comes to with their old cameras inherited from their grandparents. Miles says, quote, my favorite or my most viral video tends to be ones where I'm using extremely old cameras. I guess it gives a weird kind of juxtaposition between old and new in their own way. It's a bit like time travel. Miles adds, one of my recent favorites is an old number four cartridge Kodak from 1897 that I found in an antique store. I just absolutely love the process and find it amazing to still be able to, to use a camera that's 125 years old to take photos of the modern world.
Miles also recently experimented with a sub-miniature tone-hit type camera that takes 17.5 millimeter film. It was difficult to use the high-hit type or the tone-hit type camera as the film itself is so tiny you have to cut down 35 millimeter film to the right size. And as there isn't uh, paper backing to it, you can't use the window to see which frame you're on. So I generally just shoot one frame at a time with it. A novelty Coca-Cola cam camera so, uh, sourced on Facebook Marketplace and a Game Boy camera with its own little printer or others that stand out for him. Miles says, quote, I was actually one of the press photographers at a festival in the UK and shot one of the main stage acts with my Game Boy camera and loved the lo-fi look of the results. I also loved the fact that every other photographer was there with a huge telephoto lens and I just had a little Game Boy. More of Miles' work can be seen on his TikTok, Instagram, and the Expired Film Club website. Miles also sells film cameras and expired film in his online store. And my hat's off to him for his creativity. I absolutely love this story. And I love the old vintage cameras that he's been using with expired film. That's kind of a cool concept. And uh, I actually do have a very extensive collection of antique and vintage cameras myself that date back to the early 1900s. But I'm not about to part with mine. It's my own personal little camera collection. I did love the fact that in one of his videos, he was actually taking photos with a Casio wristwatch camera. And back in the day, I actually had one of those myself, and they were a lot of fun to play around with. I wish Casio would have continued that line. Um, now, the original ones were black and white only, and then they did later come out with uh, with the color model as well, but they never continued the line. I, I, maybe it wasn't popular enough to make it economically feasible to keep research and developing new models and, and selling new models, but I actually love that Casio, in my opinion, has always had some of the coolest technology wristwatches, bar none. Stunning nature photos on sale to raise money for wildlife protection. More than 100 renowned photographers are making their images available in the Vital Impact's winter collection sale to raise money to support international conservation efforts. Vital Impacts is a nonprofit organization which is led by award-winning photographer Emmy Vital and visual journalist Eileen Megoni that supports grassroots groups trying to protect people, wildlife, and habitats. The organization announced its latest sales initiative that features 145 stunning images and composites that capture both the beauty of nature as well as how we depend on it for our very survival. Internationally renowned photographers such as Steve McCurry, Beth Moon, Nick Brandt, and Joe McNally have also contributed photographs to the initiative. Dr. Jane Goodall, the world's foremost expert on chimpanzees, has contributed exclusive autograph prints to the Vital Impact's winter collection sale. That's pretty cool right there. That's totally amazing. Uh, The hope is to raise $1 million to support endangered animals and habitats all over the world, and 60% of the proceeds will be donated to Goodall's nonprofit organization, Roots and Shoots, and Vital Impacts grants and initiatives. Furthermore, the organization has just announced the Vital Impacts Environmental Photography Mentoring and Grant Program. Two $20,000 environmental photography grants are available to help support the development of a 12-month-long documentary project on an environmental issue. 
Deadline for the application is February 7th and will be awarded to two separate photographers who can demonstrate experience and a passion for reporting on topical environmental issues. Recipients of the grants are required to document a local story rather than having to travel to a different country or region as a way of being more environmentally conscious. That's pretty cool. There are also 50 mentorship opportunities available to the top 50 applicants of the environmental grant, which consists of a monthly class led by leading environmental and photographic experts. And there are some absolutely amazing images in this story you should definitely check out. Vital, who co-founded Vital Impacts, tells Petapixel, quote, our mission is to use photography to create empathy, awareness, and understanding to help us see that the survival of the planet is intertwined with our own survival. As photographers, we have the huge opportunity to inform and influence change, but pressing the shutter is just the start. From an image to have, for an image to have significance, it needs to reach people. Quote, to this end, we are working to get the photographs of Vital Impacts photographers and our mentees into high-profile media and exhibitions around the world. More information on the Vital Impacts Winter Collection sale can also be found on their website, which you can find in this article in the show notes. And I think this is absolutely amazing. They have some truly, truly stunning photographs in this story on Petapixel. I highly encourage you to check them out for yourself. Now, I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I will be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. Winter on Mars, NASA explains Martian frost and ice with photos. NASA has released a Martian weather report complete with photos taken by the red planet's icy landscape. Mars isn't associated with snowy scenes, but scientists from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory have explained that winter is very much present there. Quote, this time of year, many of us are dreaming of a winter wonderland here on Earth, says Mars scientist Sylvan P uh, PX. But did you know that Mars, our closest neighbor in the solar system, also experiences snow, ice, and a real winter? The above photo taken on NASA's Eyes camera shows frosted dunes in the depths of winter. The picture was taken close to the red planet's winter solstice when the sun was just a few degrees above the horizon. Quote, Mars is a very dry place, but if you go to the right location, you will find water and ice just like we have on Earth, but also CO2 ice or dry ice. In the 1970s, the Mars Viking lander observed frost forming on the ground far away from the poles. So we know that the frost, similar to what we have here on Earth, forms in those landscapes on Mars. That's pretty cool. 
We also knows from Mars Odyssey, know from Mars Odyssey that we have two kinds of frost. We can observe water frost in many other locations that, than what Viking observed, but also CO2 frost, something that we don't have on Earth. It is extremely cold where you will find CO2 ice, something like minus 190 degrees Fahrenheit. The CO2 ice does not melt. Instead, it goes back from so uh, solid to gas directly into the atmosphere. That leads to the formation of really unique surface features. No region of Mars gets more than a few feet of snow, most of which falls over extremely flat areas, NASA adds. Cold as it is, don't expect snowdrifts worthy of the Rocky Mountains. And there are some beautiful images in this article in the show notes that you can check out for yourself as well as an accompanying YouTube video. Photographer waits until temperature drops to 14 degrees to capture frozen soap bubbles. A photographer had to wait two years for the temperature to drop to well below freezing to capture spectacular macro shots of soap bubbles freezing. Jens Braun from the YouTube channel Another Perspective captured stunning close-ups of snowflakes forming in an ice uh, in a soap bubble as it gradually freezes over. The German photographer tells Petapixel he used a mix of water, dishwashing liquid, and glycerin. The glycerin prevents the bubble from popping. It only works at temperatures below seven, minus seven degrees centigrade or nineteen point four degrees Fahrenheit. He explains. Initially, I set up the camera rig in my garden in the daylight, but maybe due to the sunlight, the bubbles did not really want to freeze. So I switched over to a shady area and the results were a little better, but I had to wait until the temperature dropped even more. After waiting until, uh, let's see, 10 p.m., the temperatures dropped even further and the fun could begin. Braun used his Sony A7R4 with a Laowa 100mm attached, which was set at the maximum 2 to 1 magnification. Quote, there is no need to use an expensive full-frame body. A random APS-C camera will work best when you look for high magnification, he says. The extreme close-ups in my video is 4K footage, which is cropped to 1080. This means the width of the video is equal to 8 to 1 magnification. As an aperture, I used f11 to get a larger depth of field. Braun's ISO was set to 100, and the shutter speed was set between 150th and 1,5000th of a second, depending on the angle of the light source. Braun used a powerful studio light for the shoot, but says that a flashlight would suffice. If it's not that strong, just get a little closer to the light source and you'll get the same results. The photographer urges fellow shooters to try out their own versions. There is no right and wrong, he says. You can try any light source, any angle of light, maybe experiment a little bit with colors to achieve satisfying results. Maybe try to freeze a bubble in midair. Braun tries to make similar size bubbles every attempt and focuses manually, so he is all set up for when it starts to freeze. More of Braun's work can be found on his YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, and TikTok. And that's pretty cool. I always love it when photographers come up with a unique concept for something they want to capture with their camera. And he is definitely doing some unique captures using winter weather and soap bubbles. So that's pretty cool. And now we'll head on over to the rumor site, starting with Canon rumors. 
Canon RFS 11 to 22 millimeter f4 5 to 5.6 IS STM coming in the first half of 2023. Canon will likely release at least three RFS lenses in 2023. A couple of them will likely be based on their EFM counterparts. One of the lenses we're told that will launch in the first half of 2023 is an RFS 11 to 22 millimeter f4 5 to 5.6 IS STM. The EM version was a favorite of EOS M shooters since it was launched. It really is a very good lens, especially at its price point. We haven't been told the full roadmap for 2023, but I imagine we're going to see more information as we get closer to CP Plus in February. The Canon EOS R8 will be announced at CP Plus in February. One of Canon's next camera bodies will be announced ahead of CP Plus in February. The new camera will be the Canon EOS R8, and it will obviously sit between the R7 and the R10. We have been told a couple of times that the EOS R8 will take on a bit of a different form factor and will have a new kind of flippy screen. We also believe that the EOS R8 will use the same 24.2 megapixel image sensor that is used in the EOS R10. There will be a lot more announced ahead of CP+, and we're actually trying to confirm all that we can expect from Canon. We think this year's CP Plus show will be a big one for a lot of manufacturers. And now from Nikon rumors, the TT Artisan 50mm f2 full-frame manual focus mirrorless lens for the Nikon Z mount is now available, also in silver finish. TT Artisan released a new silver version of their existing 50mm f2 full-frame manual focus mirrorless lens for the Nikon Z mount. The lens is currently in stock at Amazon US, Amazon UK, Amazon Germany, Amazon Canada, Per gear and TT Artisans. Here are the details Sony E Fuji X Canon EOS M mount, 35mm by 60mm dimensions, Micro Four Thirds L mount, 34 by 60mm, Canon RF mount, 34 by 63mm, and Nikon Z mount at 38mm by 63mm. Focal length is 50mm, filter size is 43mm. It is a full-frame lens, maximum aperture of f2, minimum aperture of f16. Closest focusing distance is 0.5 meters. Diaphragm blades are 10 pieces. Mount is E, X, M, uh, Micro Four Thirds, EOS M, RF, Z, and L. The optical design is six elements in five groups. The weight is between 190 and 210 grams. Manual focus and the angle of view is 45 degrees on full-frame and 32 on APS-C, and there's plenty of images of this lens in this article in the show notes that you can check out for yourself. Nikon continues to deny their exit from the DSLR market. Nikon continued to deny the exit from the DSLR market. Mr. Takunara said, it is true that we are, concern, are concentrating development resources on mirrorless cameras, but we have not decided to end or withdraw from development to produce, sell, and support single reflex lens, uh, single lens reflex cameras per Nikkei. Quote, this is speculation and not an announcement by our company. However, while arguing that the production sales and support of digital SLR cameras will continue, he did not deny that development had ended. Nikon has already stopped development of single-lens reflex cameras, but even if the development of single-lens reflex cameras was completely finished, it would not be unnatural at all. 
Some media outlets reported that our company would withdraw from single-lens reflex camera development, but this is speculation and not an announcement by our company. We continue to manufacture, sell, and support digital SLR cameras, and we hope that our customers will continue to use them with peace of mind. Nikon will continue to operate the single-lens reflex camera business. We have not decided to withdraw from development. Nikon's chief financial officer, uh, Tokisu Yoshika, uh, emphasized this at the financial results briefing for the April-June 2022 period held on August 4. Nikon withdrawals from the development of digital single-lens reflex cameras after more than 60 years of history was a comment in response to a scoop reported by Nihon Kizeni Shinbun in mid-July. So Nikon is saying that it's not true, but it doesn't look like they're developing any more DSLRs. We haven't seen anything new from them in quite a while in DSLRs. The same with Canon. None of these companies are going to admit that they've discontinued DSLRs because they don't want to freak out their customers. But logically, yeah, DSLRs are dead except for Pentax. And now over to Fuji rumors. Fujifilm 2023. Can it beat the amazing 2022? A look at what's coming for sure and what we hope for. Fujifilm was the most busy camera brand of all in 2022. They have released three higher-end cameras, four XF and one GF lens, plus some accessories such as the legendary cooling fan and the TGBT1 tripod grip. Now the question is, can the Fujifilm year 2023 match the year 2022 in terms of product launches? Well, let's look at it. I have looked at the past announcements and Till back to June 2018, and I saw that Fujifilm has launched between four to seven lenses a year. For 2023, Fujifilm has already announced four lenses. That's just one lens less than what we got in 2022, which was five. They've already announced the GF 110mm f5.6 tilt shift lens, the GF 30mm f5.6 tilt shift lens, the GF 55mm f1.7, and an XF 8mm f3.5. In 2022, the focus was on X-mount lenses, and so far in 2023, Fuji's priority seems to be releasing more GF lenses. But will there be more lenses? I don't know yet, but it could. It would not be use, unusual for Fujifilm to launch lenses that they, that they have not yet listed on the roadmap, especially if those are MK2 lenses. And there is an MK2 lens very high on your wish list. And then there are, of course, your top lens wishes, which we have shared in an accompanying article. Cameras in 2023, looking back until 2018, Fuji has launched from three to seven cameras per year. However, the one year they launched seven cameras, four of them were entry-level cameras developed by Exacti Corporation. According to multiple hints, Fujifilm managers gave in several occasions, I highly doubt we will ever see another entry-level camera. The cooperation with Xacti seems to be over. So, seven cameras seems to be an unrealistic number, as we can exclude entry-level. The average is about three to four cameras per year. Of course, I am working on it, and I will let you know as soon as I can. For now, we can take the results of your future X-camera wish and future GFX camera wish, and based on that, here is what you guys want most. For the X-series, you guys are hungry for rangefinder-styled cameras, preferably with a 40-megapixel sensor. For the GFX-series, you guys desire more speed rather than more megapixels. 
But stay tuned on Fuji Rumors. I am making steady progress in finding out what we will get in 2023. And that is it for this article from Patrick at Fuji Rumors. And now let's head on over to the next story. Lightpix Labs Flash Q M20 Flash for Fujifilm. Lightpix Labs just released the new Flash Q M20 camera flash for Fujifilm, as well as the manual version here. Compact and lightweight GN20 flash, perfect for compact and mirrorless cameras. Premium metal enclosure crafted from high-strength aluminum alloy with hard anodized finish. World's smallest transmitter detachable from flash body designed for off-camera flash photography. Adjustable bicolor LED light for photography and videography. Three SKUs available, wireless TTL for Fujifilm and Sony, and manual non-TTL. Flash M, our Flash Q M20 is a portable wireless flash designed for off-camera flash photography. Metalwork body design crafted from premium metal materials to complement the design of those high-end cameras. Flash Q M20 main body can easily detach from the hot shoe transmitter and enables the off-camera flash photograph anytime, anywhere. And you can find this new unit at Amazon and B&H Photo. So that's pretty cool. And it is a very compact flash unit. I might have to check one of those out just for giggles. And now over to Sony Alpha Rumors. Tamron 150 to 500 millimeter review at optical limits. Quote, very capable super telephoto lens. And you can order this lens now for $1,199. Optical Limits tested the Tamron Telezoom and concluded, quote, the Tamron 150-500 F5-67 DI3 VC VXD is a very capable super telephoto zoom lens. Its center quality is certainly good enough for the purpose it is meant for. In the lower focal length range, it touches excellent quality in the center, and it's still very good at 500 millimeters. The outer image field is a bit of a mixed bag. At 150, the sharpness is very good, but it suffers from rather heavy field curvature, mostly visible at close to medium focus distance. The field curvature is gone at 250 millimeters, and the borders corners are pretty good until 400 millimeters. They do soften at 500 millimeters, though. That being said, keep in mind that the border corner quality is mostly irrelevant with such a lens. The lateral CAs are well controlled and eliminated via autocorrection anyway. The lens also shows fairly high image distortion in RAW files only. The vignetting characteristic is a tad high in RAW mode, but no issues after correction, of course. The bokeh has two aspects. The general blur is actually pretty smooth, whereas out-of-focus highlights can be rather nervous. The build quality left a positive impression despite the extensive use of plastics. It feels solid and there is no wobbling whatsoever, even when extended to 500 millimeters. The small focus ring isn't the best in the business, but the zoom ring is surprisingly smooth despite the heavy weight of the inner lens tube. We like the push-pull zoom lock mechanism, which is also needed due to the extending zoom design here. The AF speed depends heavily on the used Sony camera. It's not a speed demon on older bodies, but if you own the latest and greatest, the AF is impressively fast and noiseless. 
The BC image stabilizer gave us about three stops, uh, which is decent enough given the focal length. In our book, the primary differentiator of the Tamron 150-600 to is the compact size. It is much more backpack-friendly than the big Sony FE 200-600 F56-63G OSS. Some users will also appreciate the shorter minimum focal length, which is certainly making it somewhat more versatile. However, the King Sony lens isn't dead yet. And you can find this Tamron lens at B&H Photo, Amazon in the U.S. and EU, Adorama, Photocotch, DE, Park Cameras, UK. And last story for this week, at the World Cup, photographers used mostly Canon and Nikon mirrorless cameras. Lots of Canon cameras, but some Nikon and Sony shooters, too, in this sideline shot showing pros at work during the Ar- during Argentina's World Cup semifinal match against Croatia. Image credit, Matthias Hanks, Getty Images. Digital Camera World made the following observation, quote, The DSLR has, of course, reigned supreme in sports photography for decades, but for the first time, I could see quite a lot of mirrorless cameras in action. More of a surprise, though, is just how quickly Canon and Nikon have got up to speed despite being late to the mirrorless party, as far as having credible systems was concerned. That both now have true pro-level bodies backed by all the required lenses, including super telephotos, means that their dominance of the pro camera market will continue. Yes, Sony has made some inroads in Fujifilm to a lesser extent, but the brand loyalty bond, which has been hard to break, and it's probably well nigh impossible now, both companies will keep building on what they've achieved so far. Canon with the aforementioned EOS R1 and Nikon with the Z8, the most likely model number for the Z9 Support Act. And you can check out this story in this week's show notes. And that wraps up all the news and rumor stories for this week. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 303 of the Liam Photography Podcast. Happy New Year's once again. I want to thank all of my listeners for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you might be getting your podcasts. If you aren't currently a subscriber, why not? It's absolutely free. It doesn't cost you anything. Also, be sure to share out the show with your friends and family on social media and encourage them to subscribe to the show as well. Please also stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, and hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops. I will be releasing a new YouTube video later today, so stay tuned. Now, before I forget, Dr. Larry Tiefenbrunn, 
at Platypod was nice enough to give me my own permanent discount code for my listeners and YouTube subscribers. If you remember, the previous code, NL20, expired at the end of 2022, which was yesterday. But I now have my own code that you can use, which is LD20. My code will still give you 20% off on any individual Platypod branded items at their website. It does not work on the bundles, which are generally discounted by 20% or more already. And it also does not work on non-Platypod items, such as the Loom Cube or the Square Jellyfish products. Also, keep in mind that my first contest for 2023 will be starting soon, and the prize is a Platypod Extreme Flat Tripod, which was provided by Platypod. So, a shout-out and a heartfelt thanks to both Dr. Larry and Skip Cohen for making that happen. All right, that's it, folks. I will see you all again on Thursday.